Psalm 145. On the screen behind me, you have the theme. How do you pronounce that word? Some would say incomparable. I've heard the Brits say incomparable. Yes, okay. Those are the Americans who say incomparable. Okay, never mind. You South African. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you with the word of God open before us. O oh Lord, please let us not read and hear the proclamation of a psalm and be bored stiff by the teaching of who God is. Oh, let, let our hearts be moved to adoration and amazement, to stand in awe of the Most High God. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Psalm 145, a song of praise of David. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty. On your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness, and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercies over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And your dominion endures Throughout all generations, the Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. Verse 14, the Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you. You give them food in due season. You open your hand to satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous. In all his ways, kind in all his works, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all those who love him. But all the wicked, he will destroy my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Now David, who wrote the song, as you saw, 
David was known as many things, a shepherd, a king, and so on. But one of the names by which we know David is the sweet psalmist of Israel. 2 Samuel 23, verse 1. That is what, why you were created. That is what you were made for. That is why God saved you. So that you might declare His praise, says Isaiah 43, verse 21. If you do not praise God, you are lower than the dust. Because the dust honors God or praises God. Rulf read to us, everything praises God. Everything in creation. The dust praises God by being dust and by turning into mud when it rains. So if you don't praise God, you are not doing what you were made for. You are lower than the dust. You will never be fulfilled and never find satisfaction. You will be like my cockatiel. Actually, Timothy's cockatiel. But the cockatiel is like a dog in our house. It doesn't stay in its little cokey cage. It walks around the whole day with the dog. And it's everywhere in the house. But guess what it can't do? fly. And that's what it was made for. So it's unfulfilled and you will be unfulfilled if you do not praise God. What David does here in verse 1, I will extol you my God and my King. I will lift up your name. I will exalt you. I will glorify you O Lord. Why? For God's attributes. For God's perfections. Alright, so let's look at these. The first one, God is sovereign. We're going to look at a lot of attributes, many attributes. So David says in verse 1, I will extol you my God and my King. Who is David? David is the King. What does he say about God? God is his King. So God is the King of the King. He's the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's the king not only of David, he's the king over the universe. He's the king of heaven and earth. Psalm 103, in verse 19, also David, and David says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, his kingdom rules over all. God is sovereign over all. I just googled this for interest, interest sake. I don't know who made this calculation. Because I don't think anyone could count. I googled how many birds in the world. <laughs> 130 billion birds. God feeds every bird every single day. Then I googled how many mammals. <laughs> well, just as many mammals. Then I googled how many insects. Who's counted that? 10 quintillion. A quintillion is a 10 with, with 18 zeros. And God takes care of every single insect, even the fly that bothers you. Eight billion people on the planet. God gives them oxygen and sunshine and rain. And we read this in the scriptures, verse 15 and 16. The eyes of all look to you. You give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. Psalm 104 says, The lions roar, they seek their praise from God. Psalm 147 tells us that the crows cry out, the baby ravens, in verse 9, they seek their food from God. God cares for a worm. God cares for a fly. 
He upholds all things by the word of his power. We read in the New Testament. He is the sovereign God. Not only does he feed every creature. Ek weet nie hoe met die in Engels te sê nie. Elke een sy doen en later. Help me dad. Comings and goings. <laughs> Thank you Peter. <laughs> Everyone. Their comings and goings. God is in control of a sparrow. Not a sparrow falls from the sky without the will of our Father. Jesus taught us in Matthew 10. God sends ravens, greedy birds that snatch and fight. He sends ravens, crows to feed Elijah in 1 Kings 17. He tells the lions not to bite Daniel. And then when Daniel is out of the lion's den and the evil people, his enemies get thrown in, he commands the lions to crush their bones and they kill them all. God controls frogs to come and go as he pleases to bring plagues on Pharaoh in Egypt. He controls flies. He controls midgets, mughis. He controls all of these things, nets, to come, onto the, to come upon the Egyptians. God sends a fish to rescue Jonah, commands the fish to spit him out, tells a worm to eat the plant that gave shade to Jonah to teach Jonah a lesson. And even for us, you make your plans, but Proverbs tells me that God commands your footsteps. It is not in man, O Lord, said Jeremiah in chapter 10, verse 23. It is not in man to determine his own way. It is in God. God even controls the heart of Cyril Ramaphosa. God controls the heart of a king. It's like a stream of water in his hands, Proverbs 21, verse 1. God is sovereign. God is in control, working all things according to the counsel of His will, knowing the end from the beginning, saying, My counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. And it is for this reason that creation and the saints of God, the saved, the believers in the body of Christ, worship the Lord. We praise our King. Verse 6. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. Verse 10. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. That's what you read for us in Psalm 148. All those creatures giving praise to God, and obviously then also the people of God. Job said in chapter 12, verse 7 to 9, Go and look at the animals. Look at all these creatures God has made. And they will tell you, even the creatures of the sea, they will tell you God has done this. They even know this. I always think of, of creatures praising the Lord. I love birds. I just got a bird book for Christmas because uh, Jeremy had told me that all these names had changed and I knew many of the old names and got rusty. So thank you for the tip. So I got Robert's bird book. And so beautiful, uh, my favorite bird, I think, must be a woodland kingfisher. It's, and I've seen it. I've seen it. Even if you see it on a photo, it's not the same like seeing the real thing. It's, it's a blue. It almost hurts your eyes. It's like a neon blue. The blue of this, uh, the whole bird. And then black, black stripe on the wing. And then a, a bright red bill with uh, black at the bottom. Beautiful. And I see this wing, a picture of the wing spreading its, uh, the bird spreading its wings. And I think of the animals, the creatures giving praise to God. Or I think of mountains. I love mountains. I love massive uh, rock face like Meringspurt. Beautiful, beautiful. The, the mountains in the Western Cape. Stunning. 
And I always think of majestic mountains giving glory to God. My friend Seth once asked me, he said, we were driving in the car and we saw trees and he he said, do you think trees are arrows? God made them like arrows pointing up. Glorify God, glorify God. (laughs) Magnificent. And then people, we just sang because God's people praise Him in song. Worship the Lord our God. And then we go further. Not only do we worship God, we tell the next generation. We tell our children of our sovereign and great King. As we read in our text in verse 4. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. What, what is one of the very first things you teach children? You teach them about how God made the world. How God made everything. The moon and the stars and the mountains, and the lions, and the birds, and the oceans, and so on. And then we move, do more than that. What does verse 11 to 13 say? What else do we do? Not only tell our children. Yes, we tell everyone. Verse 11 They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom, tell of your power, make known to the children of man your mighty deeds, the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures throughout all generations. So we tell about this kingdom, but we tell about the kingdom of Christ that will never end. There will be no heir to the throne, no successor to the throne of Jesus Christ, because he is King of kings and Lord of lords forever. Where's the Babylonian Empire? Where's the Medo-Persian Empire? Where's the Greek Empire? Where's the Roman Empire? All gone. The kingdom of Christ will remain. The kingdom of Christ shall stand. Fight your wars. Fight your wars in Israel and fight your wars in Russia and Ukraine. None of those things will matter when the Lord Jesus returns in power and great glory to claim His kingdom in its final form. He brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light delivered us from the domain of satan and brought us into the kingdom of his beloved son the kingdom of light and this is what we proclaim this is what we proclaim saying your god reigns he's your lord he's your god bow your knee to him he has a message of peace proclaiming peace announcing peace, proclaiming news of happiness, that this God reigns. Bow the knee, tell them of the kingdom where the lion and the calf will lie together, the wolf and the lamb, where there will be peace and the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Tell them of that new Jerusalem that will come down in all its splendor, brilliance, brightness and beauty. Second attribute. So the first, God is sovereign. Second, God is incomprehensible, unbegrijpelijk, onverstaanbaar. I love listening to sermons. I love listening to questions and answers. I learned such a lot through listening to these. So there was a Q&A with uh, probably in John MacArthur's church. A little girl gets up. What was her name? Stacy or Jessica or whatever. Hi, uh, Jessica. What's your question? Uh, Pastor John, I've got a problem. You know, my friend and I, she, she sounds about six years old. The other day, or five years old even, uh, we were talking about God, and we wondered how did God came into the world or come into the world to create all of us, and we're confused. <laughs> 
God didn't need to come into the world. God created it all. And she's right, we're confused. So are some of us. If we really think too deeply about God, all of us. Who can fathom God? Who can understand God? The depths of God. Verse 3, great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. How can we come to the bottom of this? You can't. This ocean has no bottom. Job 36, verse 26. Behold, God is great. We know Him not. The number of His years is unsearchable. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Wow. We, we're looking at God attributes tonight, and if I'm done with a psalm tonight, and you might learn things about God, we've just scratched the surface. There are attributes of God that are not even revealed in Scripture. As we know from Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord. So what is the, the, the appropriate response? The appropriate and fitting response is give great praise to a great God. Verse 3 again. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Psalm 150 verse 2. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. That means our singing. And that's not the only way we praise God, but it's one of the ways. That means our singing cannot be shallow. Our singing must be deep. Our theology must be meaty and robust. Singing great things to a great heart and obviously from the heart and not just from the head and the, and the mouth. I want to share a short testimony with you. I listened to Christian hard rock music. Really hard rock. It drove my mother up the walls. Because we weren't allowed to listen to rock music as children. So I went away from home. I became a student at seminary. And I thought, well, at least this is Christian. And Christian punk rock music. I never went to Christian metal music. And I'll say something about that now. So I listened to all this wara wara. <laughs> and then I started reading the Bible more and more, more and more. And the more I read the Bible, I discovered these great things about a great God. And so I wanted to express myself through song. And the music didn't do it for me. It's like those words were so shallow. The theology was so shallow and so man-centered. Oh, all about me and what I am and how the Lord looks at me and me and me and me. And one day, I walked into the Christian bookshop to buy another CD. Because one of the bands I loved, a rock band, they had a new album. <gasps> the new album is out. I walked into that shop. I cannot explain why. I just thought I'm done with this music. I don't want to buy one. And I'm going to get rid of all my CDs. And I, I idolized it. It was all in alphabetical order in my CD case. And don't, the CD mustn't be in like this. So, those were the two reasons I got rid of it. And I thought of Psalm 119 verse 7. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. When I learn God's word, what do I want to sing? Not wara wara. <laughs> and not shallow. I want to sing things with depth. 
And that's why I got onto hymns, because there's theology, there's depth, it's God centered. And by the way, there's some other reasons you should never let, listen to. There, there is not such a thing. Uh, some guy I know all, uh, disagrees with me. But there, is not, there does not exist such a thing as Christian metal. Cannot have that. And I'll explain to you why. That's not part of the sermon. Number three, God is glorious. So what is God's glory? God's glory is His public display of His brilliance, His brightness, His attributes, His beauty. When Jesus comes, we will marvel at His beauty. You will be stunned into silence by the beauty of Christ. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. The glory of God is seen in Isaiah 6 by Isaiah the Lord, high and lifted up, sitting on His throne. As Moses prayed, Lord, show me your glory. As David said, one thing I have asked of the Lord, and this I will desire, that I might dwell in the temple of the Lord, in the house of the Lord, to behold His beauty. To meditate on the beauty and the glory of God. So you can add every beautiful thing in creation. Music. Animal life. The Great Barrier Reef with all its colorful sea creatures and different species of fish. Beautiful birds, bee-eaters and kingfishers, butterflies, sunsets, sunrises, the Swiss Alps, the Grand Canyon, the best-tasting food, oxtail and fillet steak and Belgian chocolate and Italian ice cream. Emotions, all the beautiful emotions of joy and serenity, peace and love and thankfulness. And all the wonderful fragrances of summer rain and roses in the garden and freshly baked bread and the neighbor's bryflace. You can add all of those beauties together. Added together, they are not one electron. They are not one quark. Whatever the smallest molecules are and parts of molecules. Added together, all of that beauty does not compare to not even a fraction of the glory of God and the beauty of God. And what did David do with all of this? He filled his mind and heart. He meditated on God. Verse 5. On the glorious, there's the word glory, glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. I want to challenge you tonight. A very practical thing. I started doing this and it has so lifted up my soul in my own devotions, in my own quiet time and prayer time. Start your quiet time with these three things. First thing. When you talk to God, mention one of His names from Scripture. Something like, O Emmanuel, God with us, or O Most High, Awesome in Holiness, or some name of God found in Scripture. Second thing is adore God for His nature, 
for the Trinity. Think on the Trinity. Meditate on the Trinity or on God is a spirit. He's an infinite spirit without beginning or end and adore God for it. And then thirdly, choose one of God's attributes. I'm preaching through them. You can pick them. Pick one of God's attributes and then adore God. Think over God's sovereignty, over God's glory. Meditate on that and praise Him for it. It will revolutionize your time with the Lord. It will lift up your spirit into the heavenlies, just adoring the Lord your God. And by the time you get to your crisis, your crisis will seem this small. And then not only meditate on this, then you live then you live this, whether you eat or drink, you quoted it this morning, do all, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, instead of sinning, because sin makes us fall short of the glory of God. Fourth attribute, God is good. Why is God good? Yes, He loves us. Why would we call God good? Is it because He does good things? No. God is not good because He does good things. He does good things because He is good. The goodness flows from Him. The good things He does flows from his, flow from His goodness. Verse 7. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness. Verse 9. The Lord is good to all. Verse 13. Second part. The Lord is faithful in all His works, words and kind in all His works. That's the ESV. I'll explain if you didn't see it in your Bible. He's kind in all His works. 17. Second part. He's kind in all His works. God is good and does good. Psalm 119 verse 68. Memorize that. That's only half of the verse. God's goodness is like the Okavango. Jeremy, have you been to the Okavango? Not you. That's on your bucket list. <laughs> Who's been to the Okavango? Quiz. Oh, Quiz and Gerdan. Danilo Nell. Wow. So the Okavango Delta in, in Botswana, you know, that part of the world is very dry. Uh, it's all dusty. And, and then, then what happens in the... In the rainy season, it rains in Angola and, all, and the river runs down right into Botswana and the river breaks through and it overflows the banks and it flows into the plains and it turns the desert into a watery paradise. And this is what God's goodness is like. God's goodness is abundant. God's goodness, verse 7, the fame of your abundant goodness. It overflows. Je um, Anthony who's in the church. Anthony's uh, got a strawberry farm. And you should go there sometime. He's actually said the, the church, we must have a picnic there or something. He's got 4,000 blueberry trees and uh, even more strawberries than blueberries. And even blackberries and honey and all kinds of good things. But the strawberries, he says he tried to fight off the birds, but he says it's useless. Because if you close it all, enclose the whole thing, then the strawberries don't grow as they should. And so now he says he's open. There's abundance. There's more than enough for humans and for birds. And that's what God's goodness is like. There's abundance. There's abundance. There's, there's more than enough. That's how God works in his goodness. When he created the world, God saw everything he had made and it was very good. Or you think of Jesus multiplying the loaves and the fish. And it's so much that everyone 
had his fill, everyone was satisfied, and then the pieces left over 12 baskets full. Jesus gives in abundance. There's not just, just in, enough oxygen for you, Rian. There's enough oxygen for everyone and more than enough for everyone. There's more than enough light for everyone to see. That's what God is like. And therefore, you should pray. Right? If we are evil now to give good things to our children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things, goodness, good things to those who ask Him? Pray. Ask your Father. And then, if God is good, imitate Him. He has, he has created us in Christ Jesus unto good works that we should walk in. Do good. Number five, God is righteous. God is righteous. Some years ago, a, a lady called me. She lives in another town. They said, can they attend our morning service? After the service, she wants to talk to me. So her and her husband came, and we invited some of their friends who are in our church so they don't feel alone. And so we said, have lunch with us. So I spoke, and she had a real problem. And this wasn't just a theoretical problem that, that got, her mind got tangled up. This, this got to her heart, and it... And it became a practical problem. She had a problem with the doctrine of election. Where Romans 9, where God says he, he chose Jacob and not Esau. And there was a real problem to her. And she says, and so I explained some things from Romans 9. And she said, but that's not fair. And I said to her, you and I are not the, the determining factor of what is fair and not fair. God is the righteous one. He determines what is righteous and good and just. And that's even what Paul deals with in Romans 9. People said, you will say to me, but God is unjust. And then Paul answers that objection. God always does what is just. He always does what is good and what is right. Verse 17. The Lord is righteous in all His ways. And because that is so, we should praise Him for that righteousness. Verse 7, second part, They shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Praise God for His righteousness. You and I are not righteous. God is righteous. That means people are in big trouble. Because when God judges, it will be a righteous judgment. And we will all fail the test. So our only hope is to flee to God to find His righteousness by faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. And we receive that as a free gift through faith. Philippians 3, 9. Number six, God is gracious. Now there are two sides <clears throat> when I say God is gracious. I didn't want to separate these two because the similarity, there's too many similarities. So there's a negative side of God's grace and a positive side. So on the one hand, we would say God is merciful. So when we talk about God's mercy, that means God doesn't give us what we deserve. We deserve hell. God doesn't give us that. Grace is God gives us what we don't deserve. We don't deserve heaven. God gives us that. So you got that? Mercy, God gives you what you, doesn't give you what you deserve, hell. Grace, He gives you what you don't deserve, heaven. And so we see this is what God is like, verse 8 and 9. The Lord is gracious and merciful. And again, the end of verse 9, His mercy is over all that He has made. And that obviously comes from God's 
revelation of himself to Moses. When Moses said, show me your glory, this is what God told him. The Lord is gracious and merciful. The Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and so on. What is the basis? What is the foundation for God's mercy? My experience is whenever I talk to someone, let's say in the street and share the gospel, they don't understand why. God must just forgive them. That's his job. Why can God forgive people? If a judge, if you murder a magistrate's wife, you get in court, and I don't think it can work like this in a judicial system, but let's say that judge were to be your judge in the court case. He can't just say, I forgive you, that's fine. Justice must take place. So how can God just forgive us? The reason God can forgive us is because God has a sword, and God plunged that sword through His own Son. Zechariah 13 verse 7. He will brandish his sword. He will ram his sword through the man standing next to him. The son of man. The son of man. The son of his right hand. God killed his son. So that you and I can be clothed in the beauty and righteousness and purity of Christ. So that you and I could be pulled and plucked from the fire and saved as a brand from the burning, rescued by God so that God could give you and I a kingdom. And we could be heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ. We can inherit God and all that He has, all that He is for us. So far that Jesus would even say, those who conquer I will give to sit with me on my throne. Revelation 3 verse 21. As I conquered and sat with my father on his throne. Here's a quote by an old preacher, Stephen Charnock, 1600s. God drenched his sword in the blood of his son. That his sword might not forever be wet with our blood. You want to know what the national anthem of heaven is? Amazing grace. Number seven. Seventh attribute, God is patient. So, I've got a lot of stories because I uh, spent two hours with a Frenchman on the plane. And so here's another story. Another of his little sayings. So he said, so, first of all, He wasn't sure, is there a God? Later of all, it was very clear to him there is a God because he knows that in his conscience. And and he had a big problem with God because why? Why doesn't God just fix all the evil like that? Why doesn't he just remove and get rid of all the evil? And the reason? Because God is a God of justice. And if God were to remove all the evil like that, he wouldn't sweep it under the rug. God would kill us all because that's what we deserve and more. The wages of sin is death. And I told that man that. And we can thank God that he is patient. Thank God that he is patient. Why is God patient? God is not patient that we can sin more. God is merciful. God is patient. So that we can repent. That's why Jesus hasn't come yet. That's why God has waited thousands of years. God is patient. And the psalm speaks about the Lord who is so slow to anger. Verse 8, He's slow to anger. 
Number eight. God is love. You find that in verse eight. Abounding in steadfast love. Now, Peter said the, uh, in prayer meeting this morning, I think it was in the prayer meeting, yeah? He spoke of the Hebrew word, yeah? He said, and the Hebrew word for steadfast love. Who of, your, who of you have a Bible that says loving kindness? Or mercy? Okay, they're all different. NASB, loving kindness. Yeah, so really what this speaks about, this word chesed, it means it's a, it's a faithful covenant love. A trouwe verbondsliefde. And I've got, I've got a verse to prove that in Hosea chapter 2. Hosea 2, this is a, a big book about God's marriage to Israel. And Israel's like a prostitute, keeps on turning away from God, worshipping idols. And in Hosea 2 verse 19, or in the English is verse 18, or Afrikaans verse 18, and then 19. In English, ESV says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you, engagement, to me in righteousness and justice. And there it is, in chesed, in steadfast love and mercy. This is a marriage relationship, an intimate relationship. But it's not like you and my marriage. Chris, why did you get married to Gerda? Because you liked her, but why did you like her? There was something in her that was attractive to you. That is not how it works with God and with us. There's nothing in us to attract God. Nothing. All sin and rebellion against God. Hateful to God. Detestable to God. Because of our evil and our wickedness. So why does God love us? Because of who He is. Because God is love. Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8 basically says this. You can check it for yourself. I loved you because I loved you. That's why the Lord loves us. And we see this love in verse 8 again. Abounding in steadfast love. Abounding. When did Jesus die for us? How did God show His love for us? Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners. Not when we were beautiful and attractive. He made us so. So please... Let no one here say, let no one ever who listens to this recording or watches this online, let no one say, I'm too wicked, I'm too bad, God can never love me. Even if you were beautiful and cleaned up, you would still be filthy in the sight of a holy God. God does not love you because you deserve it, or I deserve it. He loves you because He is love. He abounds in steadfast love. So, God can love you. Doesn't matter how sinful, wicked, wretched and broken you are. Are some of you sitting here this evening? Are some of you sitting at your house watching this? And you think, I do not have any hope for such and such. They will never be saved. Yes, they won't if it hangs on them, but if it hangs on God. No one is beyond the reach of this God and the reach of His love. His love is wider than the universe. It is higher than the heavens. It is deeper than the oceans. Oh, the height and the breadth and the depth and the width of the love of God. To save sinners larger than the world. 
God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Number nine, God is almighty, omnipotent. So where do you see God's power in creation? Who can help me mention some examples? What really, it, it really makes you feel small and think God is great? Mountains, yes. What else? Thunder, thunderstorms, oceans, breaking of waters. <laughs> the universe. Galaxies, stars, the sun. So all of these things show the power of God. Verse 4. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your, here it is, mighty acts. The mighty acts of God. Verse 6. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. Verse 11. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power. Think of this God who creates galaxies, billions of galaxies. How does he create them? By speaking a word. By the breath of his mouth. Psalm 33 verse 6. Listen to this. 147 verse 4. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to each star its name. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. And yet, after all of this, Job tells us in 26.14, these, this, this is, these are about but the outskirts of your ways, a whispering of your power, but the thunder of your power, who can understand? God can do anything. Nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. You think of God just speaking a word and in an instant He will raise all the dead in the world from their tombs and from the oceans and wherever their dust and their ashes have been blown with the wind. God can turn stones into humans. Should he please, he can make from these stones, said John the Baptist, children of Abraham. Nothing is impossible with God. For God to do a miracle is easier than for a child to blow a feather. You read 2 Kings 3, and it speaks of a miracle the Lord will do. And Elisha the prophet says, this is a light thing in the sight of God. It's nothing to God. To do such a thing. It is easy for the Lord. Now some of you might do this. While I'm saying that. And some of you might inside say. Amen. Yet do we pray as if God is almighty. Do we pray as if God can do. Far more abundantly. Than all that we can ask. Or even think. I want to encourage you. I want to exhort you this evening. To once again meditate on the power of God. Verse 5, once again, on the glorious splendor of your majesty, on your wondrous works that shows his power, I will meditate. Ponder anew, we sing in this church, ponder anew what the Almighty can do if with his love he befriend thee. Number 10, God is faithful. So verse 13b 
Second part of verse 13. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. Now some of you say, that's not in my Bible. Why is it in the ESV and not in every translation? This is how it works and this is the reason why. This is an acrostic psalm. So an acrostic psalm means, Amelia, when you were in school, there was a boy who really liked you and he wrote a love letter and sprayed it with brut, the essence of man. <laughs> and he wrote, Amelia, but from top to bottom. And then for A, he said, amazing. And for M, he said, marvelous. And so he went. That's an acronym. So when we say an acrostic psalm, it means every verse starts with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's basically the ABC of God. You can call it that if you want to. And now one of the letters is missing, and that's the letter N. So these guys, they found, but the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's got the letter N, this verse I read. And then they read the, the old Syrian translation, the Peshitta, they saw, oh, it's here too. And then they found, found one Hebrew manuscript, and it was there too. So they put it in brackets to say it's not in all the Hebrew manuscripts, but it's in this one and in these various translations. But whether it's in your translation or not, is that true? The Lord is faithful in all His words and kind in all His works? Of course it's true. The rest of Scripture tells us God is faithful in His words. Everything God says, God's word, God's word is like silver, which is purified in the earth seven times. It's perfect. Every word of God's, God proves true. I've seen a limit to all perfections, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. We can trust God's word. Sanctify them in your word. Your word is the truth. Not one of God's promises he made to Moses and Joshua and the people of Israel fell to the ground, says Joshua 21.45. God is faithful in his words. What he says is what he does. So, there's a thing called historical criticism. Now, that doesn't really touch you. It touched me when I studied, and it definitely touches the faculties, the universities that teach theology, because they teach false doctrine. And in many ways, but historical criticism means you come to the Bible and you say, you know, is this really true? We need to check it by some other historical and archaeological facts. And then they come back and say, no, history says this, archaeology says this, science says this, therefore Genesis 1 is not true. That God didn't really create the world and He didn't do it that way. We know it came by the Big Bang and evolution, which is nonsense, of course. And so they go and it's historical criticism. You sit in judgment upon God's Word. And you start doubting, verse 13, that God is faithful in His words. And you start saying He's not faithful in His words. And God says that God speaks truth. He's the unlying God. God cannot lie. But historical criticism says God can lie. And that is sin. Now, none of us are historical critics. But have you ever read something in Scripture, maybe you're going through a difficult time, darkness, and you think this is not real, this is not true, I can't trust this. Or maybe some doctrine in the Bible you've got trouble with. You say, no, I, don't, I can't believe that. I just can't believe that. 
Well, I want to challenge you this evening to read your Bible once again and to come to the Bible with a true searching heart. Say, Lord, show me and Lord, teach me. And I guarantee you, the Holy Spirit will show you God is faithful in all his words. And if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether this teaching that Jesus brought and this teaching that I'm now saying Jesus told us and God told us in the Old Testament, you will know whether it is true or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. John 7 verse 17. Number 11, not long to go. Number 11, God is gentle. Has life broken you? Has someone else's sin broken you? Has your own sin broken you? You know, God is not like us. God is not like the people who hurt you. And God is not like things that happen in life that break you and hurt you. God is a faithful God. God is a gentle God. And God is the one who picks up the broken and he shakes the dust off you. And he seats you on a throne with, with the princes of his people. And he washes you through the blood of his son. And he forgives your sin and he restores you. Verse 14. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises all who are bowed down. That is what God is like. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The Lord will bring you to himself if you are broken before him. 147 verse 3, he heals the brokenhearted, he binds up their wounds. Verse 6, the Lord lifts up the humble. He'll pick you up there where you're lying in the dust. He will say, comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to her. Speak tenderly to my bride. Speak tenderly to this broken person. You are broken, really, he will not break you. He will heal you. You're a smoldering wick, a candle, and your light, your, your flame is flickering. He will pick you up and ensure that the flame burns again. He's a tender shepherd that will carry you to his bosom. And be gentle with the lambs calling you, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your soul. Come to the Lord, saved or unsaved. Come to the Lord afresh. Come to the Lord anew. And he will give you the comfort of the Holy Spirit to strengthen and encourage. Number 12, God is imminent. Now, imminent, I-double-M-A, not I-double-M-I. There's a different one. Imminent just means God is close by. The Eres Nabe. God is close by. God is closer to you than your skin. God is closer to you than the blood in your veins. He's closer to you than the breath in your lungs. It's closer to you than your emotions. It's closer to you than your thoughts. It's closer to you than your own soul. The Lord is near, verse 14. No, not verse 14. Verse 18. The Lord is near to all who call on Him, to all who call on Him in truth. In Him we live and move and have our being. So yes, God is ever present and always present and omnipresent. That is true. He fills heaven and earth. But He's present in a special way with those who call on Him in truth. He's present in a special way to bless them. Do some of you feel the Lord feels so far? You call to Him. He feels so far. You want Him to feel near? Keep on calling. 
and call on him in truth and you will feel him near. Chris, do you remember you told us a story that once with your house church you had a couple of guys, you went, I don't know, for a weekend or so and you prayed on a Friday night and you were so aware of the presence of God in that room. It like as well, it, you call it fat. Like it was tangible. The presence of God when you call on him in truth, verse 19, he fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. Number 13, God is angry. Tuernach, a Jehovah's Witness said to my dad, my dad spoke to the guy at Checkers, this was some years ago, and the Jehovah's Witness said, my God is a God of love. He will never send someone to hell. A God who doesn't send people to hell is an evil God. He's not a good God. That means he turns a blind eye to sin. That means he, he allows injustice. That means he sweeps sin under the rug. That means he takes bribes to let the wicked go, to let the evil go. And we hate that in a system of justice. For that is no justice. That God is a wicked God. A good God says justice. A good God says, I will not turn a blind eye to sin. And he will punish sin. And we have it here in our text, as I'll show you in a moment. Where does God punish sin? One of two places. Either on the cross where Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And for those who trust in the Lord Jesus, verse 20 says, The Lord preserves all who love him. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those who reject Jesus, there is a cup of suffering to drink, and they'll never drink it. They'll never empty it. They get verse 20b. All the wicked he will destroy. An everlasting destruction. Second last, God is eternal. Every child, somewhere in their life, if they grow up in a Christian home, will ask, but who made God? <laughs> who made God? No one. God is before time and God is outside of time. God inhabits eternity. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. I am who I am. So we got this in our text. God is eternal. Verse 1, I will pray, bless His name, forever and ever. Verse 2, forever and ever. Verse 21, forever and ever. Why can we praise God forever? Because He is eternal. <laughs> no beginning and no end. Either you praise Him in heaven forever and ever, or in hell you will glorify God against your will forever and ever. Romans 9.23, you will show God's, God will show His power and His anger and His holiness. And finally, number 15, God is holy. God is holy. God is without equal. John Piper says, God is holy in His absolute uniqueness. One of my favorite quotes. Everything else belongs to a class. We are human. Rover is a dog. The oak is a tree. Earth is a planet. The Milky Way is one of a billion galaxies. Gabriel is an angel. Satan is a demon. But only God 
is God. And therefore he is holy, utterly different, distinct, unique. No wonder Isaiah said in chapter 40, 25, with whom shall you compare me that we must be alike, says the Holy One. And so we do verse 21. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Amen. Lord, we bow before you, the one who inhabits eternity, the infinite one, the tender one, gentle, kind, just, righteous, angry with sin, beautiful, majestic, love, merciful and gracious. Praise your name, now and forevermore. Amen.